Well, good morning. Welcome again to TBA. So glad you guys are here this morning. I'm Brian Leggan, part of our lead pastor team. Really glad that we can worship together. As you just heard in the video, we are continuing our F260 series this morning. If you're not familiar with that, it's simply a reading plan that's put out by Robbie Gallaty. He's a guy that has written a couple books that we're using for our discipleship groups, and hopefully some of you are walking through that. But really, F260 just walks you through the big picture of the Bible over the course of a year. And you'll notice that we don't read all of the passages, but you're reading the big stuff. And we've encouraged you as a church family to dig into that with us together, to dig into God's Word, to spend that time reading and walking in that relationship each day, as well as taking time each day to do some journaling. And I know that's a little bit more difficult to some of you, but it really helps us to see how God's speaking to you um, and, and helps you to see that and process that. And I hope all of you are doing that and experiencing the blessing that comes from walking in that daily relationship with God through His Word and through prayer. I want to start today by actually sharing from my journal from this this week. This past week we read a little bit in Leviticus and then we jumped into Numbers. Um, and I want to read to you from day 49 this past week. We were in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And, and if you know me, my tendency is to get a little bit legalistic about things. I tend to like get into a process and then I have to follow that exactly. So I try really hard in my journals not to be legalistic about the whole here format. But at the same time, that's generally what I follow day to day. And it really is good. It's a good acrostic. If you don't remember about here, it's highlight, explain, apply, and respond. It just helps you kind of break down what you're reading and what God's saying to you in that. So what I highlighted on that day was Numbers chapter 13, and it's the first half of verse 2. It says this, Send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites. And here was the explanation I wrote down. Over and over and over, God promised to give the land of Canaan to the nation of Israel. He emphasized that he would fight for them and drive out the current inhabitants. Yet the people of Israel walked in fear and allowed human logic to outweigh God's promises. Now, as you get into that explain, I know one of the things Gallaty encourages us to do is to really dig into the context of that. You can look at history around that, who's writing it. There's all kinds of things you could pull out of it. I went really simple this week because I already kind of understood the context of where we were. I just wanted to think about what's happening here. Here's how I applied it to me. How often in my own life do I allow my problems to be bigger than God? My human tendency is to focus on the problem and try to create a solution when I should be focused on God and what he's asking me to do. And then here's my response. God, forgive me for trusting in, more, trusting in me more than I trust in you. Forgive me for allowing my struggles to be bigger than you rather than trusting in your promises and listening to your voice in my moments of need. Give me courage to trust you above all circumstances and wisdom to turn to you when I face struggle rather than trying to fix it in my own strength. Now I share from my journal with you this morning for a couple reasons. One, I want you to kind of catch the heart of what God was saying to me in that day because we're going to dig into that a little deeper. But the other thing is I want you to just kind of have a model of how simple it can be. I've heard a lot of you share about journaling as something that's tough for you. It's something that maybe creates a little fear or, or worry about how you do that or if you even can do it and how you process. And, and your journaling doesn't have to be some kind of literary work of art. It's just your conversation with God. It's you taking time to process, God, what are you saying to me? But probably even more importantly is being able to remember what God has said to you. So you can go back and look through that journal at what are some of the things God was teaching me in that moment? What are some of the things that I've picked up? How have I grown from a month ago or six months ago or a year ago? What are the things that are happening? And it just helps you to process your relationship with him. As for what God spoke to me that day, 
I had this kind of stark realization that I often give more weight and importance to my problems and my circumstances than what I give to God's promises. In plain English, basically, I trust my own human wisdom more than I trust God's plan and God's word in a lot of situations. And I would guess that probably many of you struggle with a very similar kind of thing. Let me ask it this way. When something goes wrong, when you get bad news or something in life seems to fall apart or maybe a relationship hits the wall, what's your first reaction? And don't give me just the church answer because a lot of you are really good at that. You know, you ask the question, well, I turn to Jesus. Do you? Think about it honestly for a moment. How do you respond when things go wrong in life? What's your instinctive reaction in that moment? Do you pause to pray? Do you take time in the moment to reflect on what God's been saying to you recently or, or maybe what you've read in his word that could speak to the struggle? Or do you immediately troubleshoot the issue and come up with a three-step plan as to how I'm going to fix it? Or maybe even the other side, do you let your emotions overwhelm you and you feel hopeless and overwhelmed? See, I would suggest that most of us probably tend to do the latter. We either jump to action trying to fix it or we fall apart because life as we know it is over. Truth of the matter is we're no different in our responses today than what the Israelites were like in Numbers 13 and 14 when we read that story. And in case you missed that day in your reading, I'm going to give you just a little bit of context as we jump into it. So Moses has led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. And all along the way, God has performed countless miracles. Everything from the plagues that he sent upon the nation of Israel to, in order to get Pharaoh to let them go, to parting of the Red Sea so the Israelites could go through it, and then the collapsing of the Red Sea on the Egyptian army in order to destroy them and improve his power. He has have improving um, himself through providing manna for the nation of Israel, providing food for them while they're in the wilderness. The nation of Israel has been led by God himself all the way through. We read about the pillar of, of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day where God is leading them. He's given them specific instructions and they built the tabernacle. And now God's presence is literally dwelling among them in the tabernacle there at the center of their camp. So all of this, they've experienced God's power, they've seen him at work, and they're experiencing his presence day in and day out. And now they're standing on the border of the promised land, this land that God has covenanted to them all the way from back with Abraham, his relationship with him, hundreds of years before. They've been hearing this over and over and over. They know all about it. And the story picks up like this in Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan the land I'm giving to the Israelites, and send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. Now I want you to notice the specific wording in verse 2 that I just talked about from my journal. It says, the land I am giving to the Israelites. Now before we dig into anything else, it's important that you understand this context because God has promised this land to his people. In fact, at least eight times prior to this moment, I went back and counted, just kind of skimming through. There's at least eight times, probably more than that, that I missed because I was just skimming through quickly, but at least eight times that he's promised the land to his people. In fact, it's part of the covenant with Abraham to make him into a great nation and to make his descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And in Genesis 15, where we see that covenant between Abraham and God, God even names all the current occupants of the land that he's promising to Israel. And it's like he's reiterating that he knows what they're up against. I know who you're going to face. I know who's living there. I know what you're going to come against but I'm giving this land to you. In fact, it says that he has given 
the land to his people. It's already done. From day one, when God makes the promise to give this land to Israel, all of the emphasis is on God. It's all on God. And one passage even speaks of how he will fight for Israel, and they will take the land. He will go before them over and over and over and over. The Israelites have been reminded of God's amazing power, and they've been promised that God's giving them this land. It's a done deal. All they've got to do is show up and enjoy. But you and I know that that's not quite how the story goes down, is it? Moses gives instructions to the leaders from the 12 tribes of Israel. The men go into the promised land to explore. And then as we near the end of chapter 13, those scouts come back and give their report. And watch how it picks up here. It says, after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit that they had taken from the land. Do you remember that? The fruit that they brought was a cluster of grapes that took two men to carry. I love grapes, but I've never seen a cluster of grapes that took two people to carry. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land that you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a beautiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought, too. Twelve men, each designated as leaders from their respective tribes, sent out as scouts, sent out to explore this promised land. Ten of them come back full of doubt and fear, convinced that it's impossible for them to take the land that God's promised them. See, they're focused on the problem in front of them. And they're viewing it from the perspective of human logic. That's the only lens that they can look through. The people are big and scary. The walls, they're tall and they're thick and they're fortified. And and we don't stand a chance against these people. There's no way. Of the 12, only two come back focused on God's promise and on his faithfulness. Caleb does his best to talk sense into the people See, he recognizes and remembers all that God has already done and brought them through, and he's holding on to that, he and Joshua. He says, let's go now and take the land. This is not even a question. God promised it, and he told us to do it. Let's go do it. But look at what happens when we allow human reasoning to trump God's instruction in our lives. So you read on into chapter 14, the the ten scouts who come back full of doubt and fear, They cause this mass protest among the people. In fact, they lead the nation of Israel to disobedience. And even worse, they lead them to whine and to complain and to blame God and his appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron, for bringing them into this place of fear. After seeing everything God had brought them through, after seeing how God had delivered them, all the things he had done, they stand there and decide they would be better off to either die in the wilderness or to go back to Egypt as slaves than to be standing there on the border of the promised land and facing these obstacles in front of them. In fact, they even try to appoint a new leader to go back to Egypt. They're that serious about it. They're going to turn around and go back to slavery. But listen to the contrast of what Caleb and Joshua say to the people and how they see this moment. This is starting in verse 7 of chapter 14. 
They said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. Notice the wording there. He will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. That's a whole different perspective, isn't it? They're only helpless prey to us. They have no protection. Talking about the same people, the great big giants, the fortified walls, they have no protection. But the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Joshua and Caleb are focused on God, and I don't question for a moment that they probably felt some of the same fear that the other scouts felt. They saw the same things. They saw the fortified cities. They saw the giants. They knew the obstacles they were up against, but they chose to focus on God instead of focusing on the obstacles that were in front of them. They chose to trust in God's faithfulness and his mighty power rather than their own understanding. And how did the people respond to Caleb and Joshua in that moment? They wanted to kill them. They said, let's stone them. They began to make plans for how they were going to take care of them and wipe them out. I think this is a great example for how people are smart, but people in a crowd can be really stupid. It's a mob mentality that's going on. Nobody is thinking anymore. There's no reason. There's no understanding. Nobody's even listening at this point. They're so convinced that they're right that they can't possibly see any other option. And I think the most unfortunate part of the whole story is the punishment that comes from Israel's disobedience. See, God shows up and he's ready to destroy the whole nation because of their disobedience. And it's not just God being mean. It's the fact that God is just. It's a very part of his character. He can't allow sin and disobedience to stand unpunished. Something has to be done. There's always consequences for sin, even for you and I. And see, we don't see it the same way many times because we live under the freedom of grace because of what Christ did on the cross for us. Jesus took our consequences. But that hadn't happened yet in the story. Israel is responsible for their decisions. And justice was required in this moment. We see Moses pray for the people and he asked God to remember his promise, to remember his covenant, not to destroy the people. And he's afraid that if God destroys them, it's going to allow other nations to mock God, to mock his name. So God forgives them. But he makes it clear that there's still going to be consequences. And in fact, the consequence that they get is exactly what they asked for, but didn't realize it. He condemns them to die in the wilderness. What they just said would be better, right? I'd rather die in the wilderness or go back to slavery in Egypt. God says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And that generation he allows to die off in the wilderness, and they never see the promised land. And specifically, he kills the ten men who came back and incited this rebellion, who incited this disobedience. Now stop there for just a moment and think about this. How easy is it for us to fall into the same trap as Israel? It doesn't even take ten people to cause doubt or fear and lead to disobedience, does it? See, for those of you that have been coming to family gatherings once a month as we do those on Sunday nights, you've probably experienced already how God is moving and working among his people. One of the things we've been teaching and praying about in those meetings is how do we discern what God is saying and how do we know that he's speaking it to his whole body, to the church family? 
And it's been really cool to see how God has spoken the same thing to many different people, sitting in all different places in the room, not having conversations, not even necessarily walking in relationship with one another, and you can just see confirmed over and over how he's moving and how he's working. But it only takes one or two people to respond in fear or to respond in disobedience to cause doubt, doesn't it? See, doubt and fear, those are our natural response. That's kind of that instinctive thing that is there. Whereas faith and courage require that we remain focused on God, not our circumstances. They require us to choose obedience. They require that we walk in daily relationships, spending time in God's word, in prayer, and seeking how Holy Spirit is leading in our lives. Faith and courage are not natural and they don't occur by accident. We have to do our part to walk in relationship and choose to trust even when it seems impossible. So how does all this apply to you and me? I mean, what difference does this story make in our lives? We can see that the Israelites didn't have faith in this moment. They didn't respond in obedience. They didn't do what they should have done. They paid the price. Okay, I get that. But what does that have to do with me? Well, jump over to Hebrews with me because this is one of those cool stories where the Bible actually applies it for us. You can just read a little further. In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and I would, I would ask you to go and read that whole those whole two chapters at some point because you'll get a lot better context of the application. But right now, I just want to walk you through a few verses to help you see that. Hebrews chapter 3 starts by expressing how much greater Jesus is than Moses. And I want you to pick up with me in verse 5. It says, Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. You notice how he refers to the promised land here as my place of rest? It's referring back to David's writings from Psalm 95, if you want to dig a little deeper. And David, of course, was referring back to Numbers 13 and 14, talking about the promised land. There's a picture that's painted here of Sabbath, but it's not so much the picture of physical Sabbath that we might think of that the Jews still practice today, where they take that that literal physical day of rest, but rather it's a Sabbath of the heart that's painted here. The ability to rest from our own efforts because we recognize and realize that we are justified before God because of what Christ did on the cross for us. It's painting a picture of our ability to find rest. Or maybe you wouldn't even define it as rest. Maybe you'd define it as peace or confidence or assurance. That rest in the midst of our circumstances and struggles because we're not dependent upon ourselves, but rather we're dependent upon God. See, the author of Hebrews goes on 
in chapter 3, verse 19, and then moving into chapter 4, it says, so we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it, for this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Did you hear that? For only we who believe can enter his rest. We see that place of rest in the physical sense in Numbers as the nation of Israel stands there on the border of the promised land and, and their disobedience prevents them from going into it. But for you and I, this place of rest can be defined in really in several different ways. Two in particular, one is the promise of eternity with God in heaven if we're walking with Christ. But it's also, and I think this is more how it applies right here, the promise of a state of being or a specific perspective where we can experience here and now. It's today. When we're listening to God's voice and we're walking in obedience, our focus is on God rather than being on our problems. It's like Peter when he walked on the water to Jesus. As long as his eyes were on Jesus, he was fine. He was walking on the water. Everything was good. But what happened the moment that he began to look around him and he saw the storm and he saw the waves and he saw the craziness that was going on? He began to sink. His focus had changed. Last week, Stavi talked about this idea of beholding. And I'm not even positive this is actually what he said, but this is kind of what God said to me. Ask the question, what am I beholding? Am I beholding God and allowing his glory to reflect in my life? Or am I beholding my struggles? And I'd basically ask you the same question today. Are you focused on God and his promises and all that he's done in your life? Or are you focused on whatever struggle you may be facing? I shared with you guys a few months ago about how I was struggling to sleep part of the time. And, and today it's better, but it's still a struggle that's there for sure. This has been going on for well over a year at this point, off and on. And in the past couple months, though, I've learned several things that affect my struggle. And I'd say I have a new understanding, to say the least. But as you and I both know, understanding something is not the same as correcting it or fixing it, right? See, I think I told you then how my wife would often wake up when I was having one of those difficult nights and wasn't sleeping, and her question's always, well, have you prayed? To which my immediate reaction wants to be, shut up. That's not the best thing to say in the middle of the night to your wife, trust me. But in those moments, sometimes I can answer honestly, yes. Sometimes I would say no. And sometimes even when I say yes, the question is, are my prayers really genuine? Am I praying what I should be praying? Am I really seeking God in that moment, or am I just whining and complaining about where I'm at? See, in the past couple of weeks, I've experienced a whole new perspective, one of those kind of aha moments. You know how you've heard something over and over and over, but it just doesn't quite click, and then there's that one moment where you go, ah, that's what everybody's been saying. That's what I've been supposed to hear or see. I'm, I'm kind of stubborn and a little bit hard-headed, and I don't listen real well all the time, so these things happen to me often. But anyway, it dawned on me that on one of those sleepless nights, my focus is on the wrong thing. I'm not resting because in those moments I'm focused on the problem. And it really doesn't matter whether the problem is something specific or even as simple as I'm just restless and, and upset because I can't sleep. It can be that simple. But my focus is on the problem at hand and trying to fix it, 
Maybe you've been there. See, last week, Estavi was wrapping up the message, and then it's been confirmed over and over throughout this past week in God's Word and in conversations with others. I've discovered that in those moments, I have to change my focus. Instead of trying to fix it or trying to figure it out, I need to simply be focused on Christ. And let me expand on that a little bit, because I'm not talking about being focused on how Christ is going to fix the problem, or what he's going to do about it, or even what role I'm supposed to play in it, because that's still all focused on me, right? And my problem? It's just simply that I need to be focused on him. Reading his word, taking time to worship, praying, maybe even just sitting in silence and trying to still my mind so that he can speak. Because that's probably my greatest struggle, is that my mind just bounces all over the place. Guess what? When I do that, when I replace my thoughts about my struggles with a focus only on God, I find rest. I may not immediately go to sleep, but it doesn't take long, and and more importantly, I find a place of mental and spiritual rest. I find peace and calm. I let go of my worry or my fear or my uncertainty or whatever it is that I'm facing because I'm focused on Him. And instead of just whining about, God, why am I here again? Why can't I sleep? Why is this happening again? Isn't that what we typically do when we pray when something's going wrong? God, why? Why am I going through this? Why is this going on? Why can't I fix this? Why can't I get beyond this? Instead of that, in those moments, I'm trying to learn to choose to trust, to offer praise instead. Now, it sounds really simple, and it is, But like most things that are simple, it's not easy. It's a choice that I have to make. And it's the same as the Israelites had to choose. Trust God or trust my own understanding of my circumstances. Trust God's promise. Yes, we can go into the promised land. We can take this. He's already given it to us. Or trust the reality in front of me of, man, those are some big people. Man, they've got big cities. They've got big swords. How am I going to go up against that? It's the same choice that the author of Hebrews talks about when he speaks of you and I being able to enter God's rest if we will choose to believe and walk in obedience. So I would leave you with this today. How big is your God? Are you allowing God to be bigger than your circumstances, bigger than your struggles, bigger than your fears, bigger than your own thoughts and your own limited understanding? Because I'm learning more and more every single day that the size of our struggles is really not our issue. Our greatest struggle is the size of our God in our own minds. What are you focused on? Are you focused on the giants? Are you focused on what you're facing? Or are you focused on God? Band, you guys come on up. What are you doing to walk in relationship with God and allow him to be bigger than you and bigger than your problems? He's giving you the promised land. He's giving you his place of rest. And not just heaven, not just eternity that we're looking forward. He's giving you that place of rest here and now. Knowing that he's in charge, knowing that he's bigger than anything you face, knowing that he's walking before you, that he's fighting your battles for you. He's giving you that place of peace. See, when we're focused on God, we can rest in the middle of a crazy storm of our lives. But
but when we're not focused on God, the storms are overwhelming. And it doesn't matter how hard we try to fix it or how hopeless we feel, all we see is the storm. Where's your focus? I'm going to pray and then ask you just to respond as God leads. And you can come and kneel here at the stage or you can spend some time in prayer on your own. Or you can come back to the next steps and allow us to pray with you. We'd love to do that, talk with you, pray with you, maybe even give you some practical steps that you can take. But here's the thing I would leave you with today. Don't harden your hearts like Israel did when they rebelled. Just what the scripture tells us. Choose to trust. Choose to walk in obedience. Allow God to be bigger than any struggle that you face. Let's take a moment and pray. God, we thank you for today. Thank you for the fact that you are bigger than our struggles. God, even when our perspective is skewed, even when we see things wrong, even when we're looking at the obstacles and we feel overwhelmed or we're trying to figure it out on our own, God, even in those moments, you are so much bigger than anything we come up against. Help us to realize that this morning. Help us to hold on to that this morning. God, help us to realize that choosing to trust you doesn't mean that we won't have fears. It doesn't mean that we won't come up against things that are scary to us or that that kind of throw us off. But God, it's in those moments that we need to turn to you and look to you and trust in you that you'll take care of us and that that's when you'll show up. God, just as we can read the story in Numbers and we can see how you had promised over and over and over and over that you were going to give Israel victory to take the promised land, and we can even skip forward a few chapters and see how with a later generation you do that. You go before them, you fight for them. We see amazing stories of your victory of how you give the land to them. But in those moments where we're standing on the border and we're looking at the giants and we're looking at the big cities and we're looking at the big swords, God, those are the moments where we have to trust. Those are the moments where we have to hold on to the knowledge and the understanding and the truth that you are bigger than everything before us. So God, this morning, help us to see you as bigger than our struggles, as bigger than our obstacles. Help us to trust in you and trust in your plan, even when it makes no sense with our human understanding. Help us to respond in obedience. Speak to our hearts now as we worship. Amen.